0: Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible. So Luke chapter 21... to a passage of Scripture that most of us have heard taught before, but maybe not Luke chapter 21. And uh, if we haven't heard it from Luke chapter 21, though, we've heard one of the parallel passages, maybe in Matthew 24 and 25, or possibly in Mark chapter 13, Um, three of the major uh, passages here that Jesus is addressing in what's called the Olivet Discourse. Now, I taught Mark 13 about eight years ago. Um, But I went back and looked at my notes, and, you know, surprise, surprise, over eight years you learn some things, and uh, so I wouldn't probably hold to everything that I said when I taught on Mark 13, although uh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it might have been in some ways. It was, well, it was what it was in other ways. So if you've been around our church, you've heard it, you've Heard it, and you know, you've heard a pastor address this at some point. You, at some point, have been curious about kind of end times things and listened to somebody teach on one of these passages, trying to get your mind around sorting it out. And all of these passages are parallel, and they're dealing both with the judgment of Israel, namely Jerusalem and the temple that we've been saying is coming, is coming, is coming, as we've been walking through Luke's Gospel. And Jesus now here very clearly says it. So they, they deal with the judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple and also the second coming of Christ. And so let's read Luke chapter 21 in its entirety, and then we'll uh, dive into this. And we're going to handle Luke 21 in, in two parts. And so we'll get, uh, Lord willing, through verse... 24, and uh, we'll save the trickiest section for next week. Verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, And let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth or upon the land of Israel and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with, the for, with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day He was teaching in the temple But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning, all the people came to him, in the temple, to hear him. Now, my first ten years as a Christian, I had only ever heard these passages taught in one way, and it was everything in these passages was about the second coming of Christ, and the goal was to note all of the signs happening in our day because we were um, we were not just in the last days, you understand the last days in Scripture to be the time um, from Christ's resurrection and ascension until uh, Christ's return, all of that is called the last days. The Apostle Paul understood himself to be living in the last days, but it was always taught as if we were in the last days of the last days, and, um, uh, and everything really were the signs that were going to happen before uh, the second coming our, of our Lord or before the rapture. And it was always taught that Jesus was most likely going to return in our lifetime because the signs were greater than ever that he was going to return in our lifetime. And the refrain is constantly, look at all the signs, look at all the signs, haven't you watched the news, can't you see all the signs, did you see what China did did this week, it's the last days of the last days, we don't have any time left, you know, and it's undeniable and what I've realized in my Bible reading and study since, you know, kind of in the second ten years of my Christian life, is that a lot more of these passages are about the first century um, than I was ever taught. And that a lot more is actually fulfilled in A.D. 70, just like Jesus said it would be, than I ever understood before. And... A lot of these passages are about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, more than I ever realized. So, honest admission, I have come to see um, more in these passages of Scripture, you know, in between Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke chapter 21. I've come to see a lot more actually uh, both being prophesied of events taking place in the first century, and being fulfilled in the first century. And I don't think that that will be, I think you'll be able to follow me with this, and, um, but it is different than what most of us have thought. It's different than what, where most of us have come from. Maybe not all of us, um, but I think you'll be able to see in the text why we've gone where we've gone with Scripture. And so, um, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to follow Scripture wherever it takes us be rooted in your words, to devour your words, to see them for what they are, uh, to not just assume your words, but to let them teach us, and we pray, Father, for us to come under your words with faith. May it be so today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago in the context, the message basically was beware of the scribes. You know, that was the primary point of the message a couple weeks ago in the context. Verse forty five. in hearing of all the peoples, in the hearing of all the peoples, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes. That was the message. Beware of an outward focused religious system. Beware of loving the respect of men. Beware of self promotion and self promoting religion. Beware of ministry, pride, and greed. Beware of those who justify themselves. Beware of those who endlessly commend themselves and never condemn themselves. Right? That was the message. And I applied this, um, what seems like, for the tenth time in the last six months to our American Christian leadership. And after the message, I continued to meditate on this, and I, and I realized that all of the self-promotion all of the self-promotion of our current kind of American Sanhedrin, as I just, am <laughs> just this is what I'm going to call it from here forward, all of our American Sanhedrin is just like the rap songs I listened to back in the 90s. I make the big moves. I do the big things. I take the small groups and turn them into big names. It's Jay-Z, Money Ain't a Thing, way back in the 90s. It's just awful, you know? It's like some random video showed up on my feed last night. (laughs) It's just terrible. I don't even know how, like, it's hard to imagine how blind it is to, like, if you're the one participating in that self-promoting video. Um you can't see it. It's just so, so awful. So full of arrogance. And this is the president of one of the flagship seminaries in our country. (laughs) Alright, I'm going to stop. I've said enough about that. But I didn't get to spend enough time on this precious widow who's anything but big and rich and successful and grand and by all outward appearances is exactly the opposite of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and she is the opposite of everything Jesus condemns and Jesus praises her and he honors her and what's sweet, one of the sweet pieces about this is Jesus is on the way to the cross here, I mean we're in Holy Week, we're a few days out from betrayal and arrest in fact all of that begins in Luke chapter 22 all of that really starts to spiral to the cross But he's on his way to the cross and this widow is so precious to him that he stops in order to notice her and to praise her and to honor her as being one who um, has given up in worship to him all that she had to live on rather than those who just kind of put in something out of their abundance as another pretense and show for everybody to see how generous they are. And she... Gives everything that she has. And Jesus praises her because she's like Him. She's like Him. He's a man of sorrows. They esteemed Him not. He was born into poverty to Joseph and Mary. He has little. He's been an outcast all of His life. He's innocent of all sin, full of all righteousness and obedience to God's law. His heart is pure He shouldn't be giving up His life for sinners as He is soon to do, but He gives everything unto death in obedience to His Father. He gives everything. He gives His dying breath under the judgment of God so that sinners could be forgiven and walk in abundant, new, and eternal life. I have seen big and grand in my life I've been in more meetings that you just would never want to sit in than I ever want to be in again. I've been in the elder meetings of giant churches. I have sat in the pews of, um, you know, the American Sanhedrin. Been in the small groups. I've also seen what we have here. I've also seen what we have here. And this widow is a wonderful picture to us. Is a wonderful picture to us of everything that we want to be, and everything that, by God's grace, I think our church is becoming. And so I want to make a couple notes here, and then I think this context is important. Although this is a bit parenthetical for a moment, but I bet this—I think this context and the application of it is important for our church because of what we're getting ready to walk into. Okay. Here's some things that I think we want that this widow is an example of. We want simplicity, not sophistication. Do you realize how sophisticated the pharisaical system is? Here's just a widow coming to give her two coins, and Jesus praises her. Simple speaking of truth, simple life together, simple prayers and simple gatherings, simple people worshiping Jesus. Unsophisticated sophistication is pretty much always the way to muddy the waters and to rebel against God in the churches. Almost always. Sophistication is how we compromise God's truth. We want simplicity, not sophistication. We want humility, not pride. And I'll just tell you, I I honestly, I think in part because of my experience, I honestly didn't know how far... True humility could actually go, either in my life or in the hearts of God's people. It was like I was humble and there was a cap on it, you know? It was like it couldn't be pressed further down and more sin couldn't be revealed and more repentance couldn't be had. It was, you know, it was like, well, I, you know, know I'm a sinner. I know I'm saved by grace. Is not that just sufficient? but I've seen it go further in our hearts and lives than anything I ever saw on the big evangelical stage. We don't have to be a church that has all the answers. We don't. Of course, we're going to have some answers, and, we're going to have, and we have more answers now in some ways than we had then, but we have also learned there's a lot more that we don't know that we didn't know we didn't know. We don't have to be a church that has all the answers. We want humility, not pride. We are aware of this truth. We don't know what we don't know. So not the promotion of ourselves and how great we are. Humble confessions of significant sin. All of us carry shame about us. Our confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ will be tested Um, Whether we carry forward that in confession to those who need to know or just whether we carry it in our private life. We want humility, not pride. We also want a loving community. We want a loving community, not neglect. The big and grand. The big and grand. Um, It can't love each other. It just can't. It's a machine. It's a machine. It's not about simple love for real people who are really human. It's a machine. Machines do machine things. They don't have a heart. And I also just wanted to say, end of this, we want a loving community. I know so many of you are loving the fire out of Barbie. You know. Barbie said I was in trouble last week or last time because I did want to stir up you if you've never thought about widow care within the life of the church and of this being very important to your walk with Jesus in the life of the church. I did want to stir you up to think about that. But the truth of the matter is I'm really thankful for your love for Barbie. We want a loving community not to neglect. We also want love of God from the heart, not pretense. So that's everything that this widow is. She just gives everything because she thinks God is worthy of everything she has. She doesn't even have enough to make a pretense with. (laughs) And she gives all she had to live on. Just think about that. She gives all that she has to live on. It's not an outward show. This is just her love of God from her heart. Not pretense. And we aren't here to parade ourselves. We're here to love Him with our obedience. We're to love Him with pure hearts. With a heart of love that recognizes I've been loved by Jesus Christ. And I'm a sinful, wicked wretch. And I'm completely ill-deserving and have received the fullness of His love. The love of God is in an outward form. That's the scribes. To love Him from the heart. My heart's been transformed. What we want is true love of God. Christian heart religion. Heart piety. He loves me. He saved me. He's worthy of all that I am and have. We want godly repentance and faith. We want godly repentance and faith. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you have ever seen any American Christian leader repent of anything? Anything. Like, I would love to just hear one. And I'm not talking about the ones who, like, fall into all kinds of ego and corruption, which is pretty much all of them in one way, shape, or form. I'm not talking about them once they fall into corruption and they say they're sad and two years later they're like planning a new church. They never repent. They just never repent. Don't ever believe their lies about repentance. I'm thinking about like an American Christian church leader who hasn't actually fallen into some you know, significant, disqualifying corruption, just actually thinking they learned something really of significance that's been wrong with how they've been thinking and living and publicly repented of it. And it also doesn't count when the repentance is only in the direction that the culture approves. But can you name one? And yet the Christian life is a life of repentance. Repentance. And I can't think of one. So, what are they modeling for us? Beware of the scribes, right? We want g- godly repentance and faith. Reformed and always reforming means we get large things wrong. It's like, I. This is just the most clear thing to me now. We actually make big mistakes. We get large things wrong in the church. It's just the way it is. The real difference is if there's any repentance. That's the, that's the real difference. Is there real repentance to those things? It's like the only thing we think we need in the church of Jesus Christ because we have all the answers is like minus, minor little tweak here, minor little, little adjustment to the church's life here minor little new strategy and way of thinking here, it's just like everything is just like a, you know, a quarter turn. I mean, how arrogant must we be to think that we have all the answers, we've mastered the Scripture, and we've mastered the Christian life, that we wouldn't just actually have to fall at the feet of Jesus and just go, God, forgive me, I've been wrong about everything. And I've sinned against you and everyone else. I hope that you've seen that from me. And I've certainly seen it in you. And that's what we want. Inward heart transformation and obedience. Godly repentance and faith. We want faith in God's truth. The kind of faith that's going to make God's Word sound different not the kind of faith in God's word that's going to make God's word sound different at every cultural fad, in every, you have to understand, Christian movements are faddish. All of them. You know. There's one place where movements go. That is what I'm saying. Okay. Christian fads. We don't want any of it. We don't want God's Word to sound different at every Christian fad. We just want simple faith in the words of God, and we want to follow Scripture everywhere it takes us. I mean, listen, I remember a man telling me, it was like, like in the first few months of attending a church, I remember a man telling me, there, there's just so many more ways you can glorify God in a big church. Just so many more ways. You know, at the time, I didn't know what to think about that. I know exactly what to think about it now, but I didn't know what to think about it then. And I know, I know I sound like a monster sometimes when I say these things. I know. I know I absolutely sound like a monster. And here's the reason why I say them. The reason why I say them is because I've sat... I've I've been in it. I've seen it. I've seen it up close and personal. More than that, I'm increasingly aware of it. I know lots of pastors and lots of churches, um, and I'm familiar with many of them. And I have seen, in what we have, I have seen more love, and I have seen more humility, and I have seen more power at work, and I have seen more repentance than I've seen in all of that. All of it. And I don't want anything to do with that. Give me what we have. Now, I'm not saying I don't want our church to grow and that the goal is to stay as small as possible. That's not the point. The point is that we actually have a heart that's true. The point is that we actually have love that's sweeter and repentance that's godlier and faith that holds and humility that goes farther and obedience from the heart and not pretense. And I, and that is a powerful community. And I have seen far more of it here than I've ever seen on the big grand stage. I think it's also important that you understand that in our day, I have to say things like this. I don't mean this to be like, don't think about this like a class system, that the goal here is for the small churches to raise up against the large churches and topple them and take over. That's not what I'm saying either. I want what we have to be true and not a pretense. Pretense. And if we're aware of the modern-day scribes' tactics, we're better to remain true to Jesus. Okay? Now, all of this context matters. Luke 21 is Jesus' Olivet Discourse, beginning in verse 5. Verse 37 tells us, right, Jesus went into the temple to teach, the people listened to him teach, then he retired to Mount Olivet at night. At some point, you know, he goes out to Mount Olivet and sits down and starts teaching the disciples. This is a very private sermon that they receive. And it's on Olivet that he gives this sermon, which is why it's called the Olivet Discourse. And notice in verse 5, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was what? It was adorned with noble stones and offerings, you know. This was big and grand. Everything about it. And then, in that's what they're, you know, they're kind of this is, a, this is the Herod's temple. Herod the Great's temple began being built somewhere maybe around 10 BC, continued for about 70, 75 years. It was absolutely magnificent. It just was. It was magnificent. It wasn't the biggest temple proper of the day, but the temple complex, bigger than any other um, religious site in the in the ancient world, probably would, if it was still standing today, would be considered um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Maybe one of the greatest of the seven of the ancient world. Just absolutely an incredible site. And so this, the grand temple. They're all impressed with it, thinking about how incredible this place is. And here's what Jesus is completely unimpressed with it. He's completely unimpressed with what is big and grand and supposedly faithful. Verse 6, "...as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." Now, here's what I want you to first see. I want you to first see the structure of the passage that kind of holds it all together. really important note here at the beginning of the passage and a really important note at the end of the passage. Everything in Luke 21 is in answer to the question that the disciples then asked because the disciples, right, they asked this question. And they asked Him in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things... These things, right? is not stone, one stone left upon another. Verse 6. Or What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And so in verse 8, and he said, marks the beginning of Jesus answering the questions. The same question. When will these things be? What will be a sign when these things are about to take place? So, what are the events that are surrounding it, and is there any sign that we might know that could be of help? So that's what the context of this is. Jesus is answering that question. Same question, just kind of asked two different ways. The other important the, and the signs given, really in verse twenty. But the second thing, at the end, of the, nearing the end of the passage, if you will, jump down to verse thirty-two. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And so, on the front end, you have these questions that Jesus is answering. And on the back end of the passage, you have Jesus saying, you know, all of these things will take place. And those who are hearing me right now, you disciples, this generation, all of these things will take place before this generation passes away. That's his point. So two big structural pieces to keep in mind throughout the context. Now, here's the outline of this message. Two points. Luke 21 has nothing to do with you. That's the first point. The second point is Luke 21 has everything to do with you. Okay. So let's start here. Luke 21 has nothing to do with you. Now, why would I say that? Because if it has nothing to do with you, You know, it's like what pastor ever stood up in front of a church and just at the beginning of the sermon was like, this has got nothing to do with you. But there's a really important sense that we have to understand this. Why would I say that? You know, you can just tune out for the next 30 minutes. You just like everybody go snooze for a minute. Well, who is the you in this passage? Who is the you in this passage? Jesus is talking to the disciples and he keeps saying, you, 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 repeatedly. You will be hated. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it's just throughout the entire passage, Jesus is talking here to the disciples. And in that sense, the events here are not events that we're looking for the signs of the times for the, es- the final eschaton to come, but these are the events surrounding the disciples' life in Jerusalem and the temple. So, that's why I say this passage has nothing to do with you. And Jesus is merely answering their question. Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And of course, they're gobsmacked because, do you realize, some of the temple stones, as Josephus, Josephus an ancient historian from the first century. He was a Jewish historian. He's not a Christian apologist, but a very good historian he says that some of the foundation stones were as big as 67 feet by 7 feet by 9 feet. It's just incredible size. Some of the stones building the walls, 37 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. Just pure stone. And of course, they understand because they know enough about their Old Testament and know enough about Israel's history, there's things like Babylon. There's things like Assyria. They understand that Jesus is pronouncing a judgment upon Jerusalem and its false religious system and its rebellion against God. And so they're probably thinking a little bit in their head, like what will be the sign when this will take place because I don't want to be here. So they want to get out of there. So what is the sign? Well, that's going to come in verse 20. Actually, you know, the way we always talk about these things today is that these are all signs of the second coming, but the only sign here actually is given in verse 20. Everything else is like general events that are going to happen, but the real sign, the real point, the real imminent sign isn't given until verse 20. Okay, verse 8. Jesus begins to answer the question. He said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in My name saying, I am He. The time is at hand. People will come and say, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Right? This happened in the first century. It's happened ever since. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. Just don't listen to them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once, or will not be yet. So there's things that are going to happen. Don't be terrified. Do not be terrified. Do not be in panic. I, I do think that's an important word for us today, just because the normal way we look at a passage like this, we make it all about the signs and the newspaper and the current events and the technology and everything else, and everybody's in a panic over it. The word that I just always call it, it's like it just creates a zany Christianity. Everybody's panicked. Everybody's terrified. They're so so aware of the signs and so unaware of how zany they are. (laughs) Do not be terrified. So He tells this to the disciples. Verse 10, Then He said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Phrases like that, we always tend to associate with the second coming of Christ. But uh, there's good evidence that all of these things were fulfilled in the first century in all kinds of different ways. There were earthquakes, there were famines, there were all kinds of stuff. Wars, it's like when in history has nation not risen against nation, you know? Kingdom against kingdom. And then he gives this parenthetical statement before some of those things happen. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. And so Jesus is mostly concerned not about all the signs and exactly how it's going to go down in the various events the way we are. He's concerned about the disciples' witness. When they have opportunity to stand before kings and governors, that they say what they should say in honor of their Lord. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. I love this. This should be so encouraging to you. Especially if you feel unlearned, or you feel poor of speaking, or you feel like you can't think on your feet in a particular moment when you have a situation to bear witness for Christ. You know, the disciples weren't the most learned bunch in every way. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Yet, knowing me, I would be on the meditation bandwagon. Okay, he says I'm going to stand before a king the next six years of my life until this happens. Here's exactly what I'm going to say when I get there, right? Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Don't worry about that. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death and much of this we just see in the life of the disciples and in the young church being fulfilled throughout the book of acts you will be hated by all for my name's sake now and that's true right today as it was then we just don't think anybody should ever be hated We just don't. Anytime anybody's hated, it's right. How many times have I said this to you? Anytime anybody's hated, it's their fault. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. Why do people hate you? Because you will be hated by all for My name's sake. That's the answer. But then he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. And of course, he says, some of you will be put to death. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. So what he must mean is, Ultimately, not a hair of your head is going to perish. It's a lot like when Jesus says, Those who live and believe in me will live and never die. Well, they still die, but they don't ultimately die. And so that's the point here. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Just like the widow. Why do you think Jesus praises the widow? Right in this context, Luke is saying, You disciples are going to be just like the widow. You're going to have to give everything to Me. Even your very lives. The disciples might not have had the respect of men. They may have been hated by all for My name's sake. They may not have had big and grand. They might not have had long robes and greetings in the marketplaces and... they were going to be commanded of God to give everything. And this would be their witness to who Jesus Christ was. But something very specific happens in verse 20. Verse 20 is the moment where the sign is given. And this is the moment where the disciples actually, and the Christians actually have to do something. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that its desolation has come near. So one stone's not going to be left upon another. When's the sign that this is going to take place? Right here. Here's the sign. When you see Jerusalem surrounded or being surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So what does Jesus command the disciples to do? And of course, you think, Jesus is with the disciples around you know, whatever year, 33 A.D., right before His crucifixion, give or take. We're 37 years from 70 A.D. The Roman siege is from 66 A.D. to 70 A.D. It's a four-year siege. The armies around that point were 30 years after Christ's ascension are beginning to surround Jerusalem. All of the Christians at that point who would have been in Judea or Samaria or in the land of Israel or even still in Jerusalem who hadn't scattered under the persecution recorded in Acts chapter 8, they're all still there. And all of the Christians would have been aware of what Jesus had said. This was written down, recorded, spread around. I mean, the Christians would have been aware of the Olivet Discourse. And they would have been concerned about these events, but in particular. All of the events wouldn't be the things that would shake them. The thing that would be the sign they had to act on is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... So so whenever that was, around 66 A.D. or in the coming years, they're right in there at some point. What would the Christians do? They would do exactly what Jesus said to do right here. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. Don't go into the city of Jerusalem. Let those who are inside the city of Jerusalem leave Jerusalem. Verse 22: For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And the vengeance, right? The vengeance is not just Roman vengeance. The vengeance here against this people, the wrath is the wrath of God against this people. This is divine vengeance. Now, why does Jesus say, if you don't go into the city? Jerusalem is one of the safest cities, it's a fortified city, it's built on a hill. It's withstood war and tumult and siege countless times over the centuries. But where would the Jew go? The natural place for the Jew to go would be as the armies are marching to run into Jerusalem. In fact, Josephus Josephus records over a million people within the city walls of Jerusalem when the siege is taking place. Maybe upwards of 1.2 million people. Men, women, and children within the city walls. But the Christians aren't there. The Christians aren't there. The Jews are there. The Christians aren't there. The Christians have fled. The Christians actually it was a mark of their faith to take Jesus at his words here when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem flee. Flee. And it's just absolutely, Jesus says, alas for women, who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth. I think that's probably better translated the land. The whole context is Israel right here. For there will be great distress upon the land, the land of Israel, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword. And be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 1.2 maybe million people within the city slaughtered by Rome under divine vengeance temple begins to just be completely dismantled the Christians are not there the Christians have dispersed from the persecution recorded in Acts 8 and for those who are still around they actually obey Jesus and leave this is a terrible scenario and the judgment of God against those who rebel against him is absolutely terrible. And he is wonderful in grace, but he is terrible in judgment. You know, as Rome surrounds Jerusalem and basically just starves the city out. I mean, This people, when the wrath of God is poured out upon them, they're starving within the city walls eventually. They're weak till they can't fight. Mothers cannibalizing their children for food. It's absolutely horrific. Flee to the mountains. And the truth of the matter is Jerusalem is still trampled underfoot to this day. You can go see some of the foundation stones of the temple if you want. And at the same time, you'll see the Muslim mosque, right, the Dome of the Rock sitting right on the temple mount. For 2,000 years, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Christians aren't there because Jesus delivers Christians from the wrath of God. And this this is why this passage has everything to do with it. Because this Savior who came for you, this Jesus who is called the Christ, He came for you, who believe. And just as He came for the Christians of the first century, He came for you, and He did exactly what He does. He delivered them from the divine vengeance against His people Israel. For each of you who has the simplest, smallest faith in Jesus Christ, that He came and He bled on that cross, and He paid your penalty in full, and He died there in your place paying the, the penalty for sin that you deserve to pay. Death of very death. Second death. He paid it all until there was no penalty left. He drank the cup of wrath until there wasn't a drop left for us to drink. All of the Christians are gone and delivered from the wrath of God. And it is the same with us because in this passage, even if Luke chapter 21 is very specifically recounting the events surrounding Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, it is the clearest type we have in Scripture of the second coming of Christ when He will come and conquer and judge and when He comes and conquers and judges. Jesus Christ alone is the hiding place. Jesus Christ alone is the refuge from the wrath of God and the place of safety. Jesus Christ alone is the shelter from the divine vengeance that won't in that day come just upon the land of Israel and Jerusalem but upon the entire earth. And just as it came upon Israel, will come upon all the Gentiles and all the rebellious nations. And all must flee to Christ. And if they flee to Christ, they aren't fleeing to mountains, and they're not fleeing to rocks to hide under, and to woods that they can escape in, and to catacombs that they can meet in. They're fleeing to a cross that actually saves from that wrath to come. We trust in Jesus to be our only hiding place. And what we find when we come to Jesus and we confess our sins and we repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ, we find saving grace and the fullness of forgiveness and deliverance from the wrath to come. find welcome and acceptance by Jesus Christ our Lord and our God Have have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ do you know that his wrath is coming upon the world flee the wrath to come believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved Stand with me for prayer, Which? Sorry, actually, you can sit down for prayer. We're not going to stand and sing the last song. We're going to be seated, okay? God, our Father in heaven, our good Father what can we do but praise You and say hallelujah that Christ is our shelter. He is the one by whom we flee under the shadow of the wings of our almighty God and Father. He is the one to whom we flee to deliver us from the wrath to come. He is the only one in whom we are saved. And may all in the hearing of Your Gospel May they all flee to Christ. May you, Lord Jesus, be our hiding place in that terrible day. In your precious name we pray. Amen.